My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Marketers Shooting the Shit. I am your host, Sean Swaim, and I am so stoked to have a living legend here with us today. Uh, we have both decided to crack open some Elijah Craig. Got some bourbon flowing, so cheers to you, cheers. my friend. Today's guest is none other than Jason Falls. Man, where do I begin with Jason's resume? Uh, the first thing I'll mention is he is the founder and executive producer over at the Marketing Podcast Network, where you are listening to this episode, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but he is one of the legends in influence marketing. He's currently over at Scipio. You've probably seen him on a stage somewhere. Um, you've probably seen his work. The resume is incredibly impressive. Something else I wanted to mention too, but I mean, dude, I'm so stoked to have you here. Well, thank you, Sean. It's what, ladies and gentlemen, that's uh, Sean's nice way of saying I'm freaking old, is what he's, what he's saying there. <laughs> he's um, a damn handsome, refined gentleman. That's, well, that's, how about <laughs> I'll take damn handsome? Refined might be a little too far. <laughs> I'm as delightfully unrefined as they come. <laughs> Beautiful. We'll take. We'll take it. Look, Hooters. <laughs> exactly. It's a good. What yeah, was there? there? I knew. What, I, that's, what I think there? it was it. It's a uh, uh, delightfully tacky yet unrefined or something. Yeah, like something that. like that. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah, man. <laughs> so, all right. All that aside um yeah man i'd love to just kind of dig right in and and start at the beginning i mean if i were to ask you know your parents guardians and teachers when you were growing up you know <laughs> what were you like as a kid man like what oh, led to this yeah you'd get you'd get some really good stories and funny it's kind of funny you asked that question because I mentioned this the other day. Somebody reminded me of something that made me tell the story. So to give you a, a, a quick peek insight into Jason Falls as a child, 
when I was in first grade, uh, so, you know, six, seven years old, I was playing with, uh, you know, GI Joe dolls, the old ones, the, the, you know, the Barbie style, big ones, yeah. Joes, big ones. And I needed, and I was at school and me and my friends needed an extra, uh, person, I guess we were setting them up, you know, as a, a team five on five or something. And we were missing, we were one short. So I borrowed Kelly Van Hoos's Barbie doll uh, that she had brought to school with her. But I needed it to be a man for some reason because I was six and stupid and, you know, it was 1979. So it's not like, you know, the gender things were uh, in, in instilled in kids then to be, you know, fair and all that good stuff. So I needed this Barbie doll to be a guy. So I cut its boobs off. And um, so, yeah. <laughs> So that, that was me as a kid. <laughs> I was expecting you to, oh yeah, cut its hair. No, but, uh, I just put a I pair just, of jeans on yeah, it. No, I, my, my mother continually, <laughs> she has reminded me, you know, every so often throughout my life. Yeah. Just remember in first grade, you cut Kelly Van Hoos's Barbie dolls boobs off. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, okay. I mean, I know I did that, but I was six and stupid and yeah. didn't know what I was doing. So fortunately I mean, it was, it wasn't like a, you know, a, a psychopathic thing. It was just me trying to make a dude out of a female yeah. doll. Yeah. No, I got you. I mean, the time that you did it when you were 36, I mean, I guess we got <laughs> Yeah. When I started doing it for fun, it got weird. <laughs> when you started but, playing with different ways of doing it, you know, yeah. froze some off. <laughs> I, I do think though, if you went back and asked my teachers, they would, they would tell you that I, I always wanted to be the center of attention, which probably doesn't surprise anybody. Um, I did go into a career in radio at first. And so I always mm. wanted to be the guy behind the microphone and I wasn't real keen on being on television necessarily, but uh, I definitely wanted to be, I wanted everybody to listen to me. And so that sort of kind of over the top personality and always being, having something to say, that's probably been a, a theme throughout my life. Got me in a lot of trouble in school, you know, I was always the one who was showing off and joking around and talking in class and stuff like that. I didn't get in a lot of trouble, but I was, I was definitely not a teacher's pet. Gotcha. So you mentioned that you got into radio. Do you remember what might've been your first dream job? Like when you were a kid, what you wanted to be when you grew up? Um, yeah, actually I do. Um, and it's somewhat related, not exactly, but again, about the same time, five, six, seven years old, <laughs> and I have no earthly idea where this came from, but I was fascinated with kiss and I okay. just thought the makeup and the music and they were badass, And I just was like, I want to be that. And so me and Chris Salyer, who was a friend of mine, we, we went to like after school care together and the Lockhart twins, Kevin and Keith Lockhart were guys that I went to school with. They were a little bit younger than me. The four of us acted like kiss all the time. And so we would sit and listen to, um, like a cassette tape, I guess, or maybe it might've been an eight track back then. Uh, one, one of the, one of the guys, Chris probably had a boom box or something that had all this stuff on it. So we would listen to kiss tapes during after school care and we would, you know, air guitar and act like kiss. And then I have a picture of me somewhere. Uh, it, I was just, you know, just goofing off around the house and I painted Peter Chris's makeup Beautiful. on my face and I'm in pajama bottoms with no shirt on painted like Peter Chris. And I think I've got a guitar like hanging off my back, which doesn't make any sense. Cause he played drums, but drummer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to be a drummer and 
from the time I was really young, my mom kind of embraced it. She bought me all the little stupid Bugs Bunny drum sets and whatnot. And then by the time I got to high school, I had an actual trap set and, you know, had headphones and a big stereo and would play along with certain songs. I was never any good. I was never actually in a band or anything, but um, I loved playing the drums and I wanted to be a drummer, but I guess it was probably, you know, 16 years old or so I realized, yeah, I'm, I'm not good enough to actually do this for real. So I kind of gave it up. That's, that's why I, I didn't know that about you. And my background's kind of similar. I, except my band was Metallica. So it was nice. like, I want to, I want to do that. Yeah. Like, I don't know yeah. what they're doing, but I want to do that. Metallica was, they were, I had a couple of friends who were really into Metallica, but I was never into the heavier part of metal until the black album when the black album came came out and they and they added bass to the to the treble right um, you know that's when i was like oh yeah oh yeah this shit's good you know so yep. i really got into metallic at that point i've always liked him ever since and oh fuck cool story speaking of drummers i was once uh, walking through the metropolitan museum of art in new york city and turned the corner and there stood Lars Ulrich with his girlfriend, just randomly in the middle of a art museum. And I was like, Ooh. and like he <laughs> he saw me looking at him, and I realized, oh shit, I'm I don't want to wig him out. So I just kind of nodded and smiled, and you know walked away. I didn't like bother him or anything, but yeah, I wow. ran into him one time in public, which was really cool. Wow, in the in the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. he's a but if you get to know him, if you look, read up about him or whatnot, he's a super eclectic dude. Oh yeah. Um, like yeah. He, him being into art does not surprise me at all. He's, he's a, he's an interesting cat. Yeah. No kidding. So we, we talked a bit about what you were like as a kid, fast forwarding a few years to the college years. Oh, no. What did, uh, what did those look like for you? <laughs> they were, they were quite the blur <laughs> <laughs> for, for the reasons you probably expect. I, you know, actually, honestly, though, I was kind of a nerd all throughout, you know, school, made good grades and everything. And in college, um, I, that's when I started sort of veering over into sports quite a bit more than I had in high school. I worked at the radio station in high school and I, you know, called the high school, local high school games, play by play and stuff like that. And, you know, kind of learned how to be a sports anchor. And then I really wanted to kind of focus on it in college. And so, but instead of going to the campus TV station or the campus radio station right away, I actually started writing for the campus newspaper because I knew I needed to kind of work on my writing skills. And um, a semester after I did that, the, the PR guy for the athletic department, which uh, back in that day, they called them sports information directors. Now I think mm -hmm. they call them athletic media relations people. But the SID, Randy Stacy was the guy's name at Moorhead State where I did my undergrad. He pulled me aside and said, how would you like to do what you're doing for the, the newspaper but get paid for it? And I was like, I'm, I don't have any money. I'm game. That's cool. And so I basically throughout college was like his main assistant. So I traveled with the uh, women's basketball team. I traveled with the softball team, uh, traveled a little bit with volleyball, did a couple of men's basketball trips, a couple of football trips here and there. And eventually that led to, I, I spent 15 years, the first half of my career, I spent 15 years as a sports information director. Um, oh, after wow. I, I did grad school and worked in radio for a couple of years uh, in New York. But then when I, when I came back to, you know, kind of settle into a career path, I was a sports information director for 15 years. And basically uh, you're the PR guy for the athletic teams. And so you handle press conferences and press row and you did media guides back then. Now you do websites um, and you're in charge of publicizing, you know, the sports teams. And so that was my first career. 
And I, you know, I tell people I, I basically watched ball games for a living, wasn't a real hard job, it was a lot of fun, didn't pay crap because in, in the world of college athletics, the only people they pay are the coaches. Sure. Um, but I had a ton of fun and, you know, got to basically travel all throughout the United States and see a lot of sporting events and, and had a blast. And then I got, you know, married and had kids and realized I can't afford to live like this. So gotcha. I got out and into the mainstream marketing world at that point. Going into college and, you know, getting that part of life started was traveling on the itinerary for you? Is it something you kind of always saw yourself doing or? Yeah. You know, I grew up in a really small town in Eastern Kentucky and I knew, you know, when I graduated from high school, I'm not coming back. I have to see the world. I've got to get out of this place. I was, I was too big for the, for the small town. Um, and I'm quite Got sure it. that most of the people in my small town thought uh, we, we're going to be glad to see you go. Um, <laughs> uh, I was, you know, pretty obnoxious, but anyway, I, I just, I wanted to see the world. I needed to be in a big city. And I mean, even now I live in Louisville, I kind of split time between, between Louisville, Kentucky and Lexington, Kentucky, both of which are decent sized cities. They're not mm -hmm. you know, New York or Chicago, but they're, they both, they both have airports and arenas and things like that. So there's plenty to do. Um, but I don't think I could go smaller. Uh, I had somebody ask me the other day if I would ever move back home. And I'm like, hell no. I love Pikeville, Kentucky, the little town I grew up in. I love the people there. Mm -hmm. My mom's still there. It's a fantastic place. But I have zero interest in living there anymore. I did my 18-year tour of duty and I'm done. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so what, what about it do you think it was? Was it just... You know, I think it's just too small. Like I need mm. things to do. I need concerts. I need sporting events. I need to be e easy access to an airport, especially now that I have a career where sometimes I have to fly to see con con you know, clients and go to conferences and whatnot. If I were to live in Pikeville, Kentucky, I would have to drive like two and a half hours to get to an airport because wow. it's literally, it's as far east in Kentucky as you can go without being in Virginia or West Virginia. So that little point of Kentucky that Got touches it. Virginia, West Virginia, that's where I'm from. Middle of the hills, Hatfield, McCoy, Hillbillies, Moonshine, that, that whole world. And again, I love the town. The people are fantastic. I'm sure very fortunate that I grew up there because yep. it was a little isolated, a little insular. It was safe. I rode my bike all over town and you know, never had any crime or problems to, to worry about. But I, I wanted to, I, I was a little bit more of a worldly thinker, I guess, than the people around there. Sure and, sure. and I just, it couldn't hold me back. I needed to go to New York. I needed to go to LA. I needed to, you know, go to Europe. I needed to travel around and, and see things and do things. And Pikeville just was too small. I just didn't have those opportunities. You know, a little, little too isolated for me. Now I'm plugged into a place where I can be anywhere I want to be in a few hours. And that, that suits me better. Very nice. All right, so we're going to take this quick opportunity to pay our the people who are keeping our lights on and whatnot. <laughs> paying so for we'll, all the bourbon. Yeah, paying for the bourbon. So we'll be right back. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. 
Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. And we're back. We each got up and did a jog around the block. Exactly. To, uh, yeah, during that break. So was, I didn't uh, even break a sweat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's what that's what this life's all about. When it's cold, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear. Obviously, you're you kind of started in sports and communications and mm-hmm. and all of that. What led you into marketing? And then we'll get more specific into the uh, the influence. Sure. World. So. So there's a, in a roundabout way, it, it all kind of ties in together because obviously I was, I was a PR guy in the world of college athletics and, and PR is a part of marketing, mm-hmm. you know, a, a little niche, you know, division of it. And I'll, I'll never forget when I was, uh, I was very young and, and green, but I was, you know, had a lot of ideas and a lot of energy and whatnot. And when I was the assistant sports information director at Moorhead State, I'd come back. I'd been in New York City in radio for a couple of years. I'd come back to Kentucky to my alma mater. And I was uh, I was there for about six months as the assistant sports information director as a full-time job. And they and I was like, well, I'm not getting paid a whole lot. I'm getting ready to get married. I need to make more money. And the athletic department created uh, the position of director of marketing. It was the first time they ever had a, a director of marketing. And I applied for the job. And so after I applied for the job, a couple of weeks later, the assistant athletic director, uh, a young lady who uh, was in, you know, uh, you know, very talented at what she did. And she was the one hiring. She pulled me into her office and she said something that stuck with me and actually stuck under my crawl a little bit. She said, Jason, you're just a PR guy. You don't know anything about marketing. I can't hire you for this job. You're not mm. even going to get an interview. And I was like, okay. I mean, I took the, you know, criticism and, and the, the feedback uh, for what it was worth, but it pissed me off because sure. in, in my mind, PR was just as much a part of marketing as anything else. And, and good marketing is good ideas. Mm-hmm. And I knew I had good ideas. No, I didn't have a marketing degree and I didn't have specific marketing experience. So she was absolutely right to not interview me for the job. I didn't have any problem with that. But the fact that she said, you're just a PR guy made me mad. And so it stuck with me and I went through, you know, my, my 15 years as a college PR guy, if you will. And in that time, I ran radio broadcasts for sports teams. Um, I did publications for our sports teams. I built websites for our sports teams. I produced a television show for our sports teams. So I was creating all this content and all this media. The only thing I wasn't doing was buying ads. Um, mm. And so I was doing marketing and I was doing far more than just, just PR. And so when I decided when my son was born and I decided I can't, I can't tr- continue to travel the way I'm traveling. And I decided to look outside of college athletics. I got a, a, a position at an advertising agency. And yes, the, the position originally was a PR account manager. So I was still in PR. But the reason I got that job was because I'd had this breadth of experience and I had ideas. Mm. So literally within nine months of landing in that PR assistance role, 
I was promoted to director of social media. This was in 2005, 2006 before wow. ad agencies had directors of social media because I had a client who walked in my office one day of the ad agency. I wasn't even working on their brand. She came in and she said, I hear, you know, a little bit about the internet and all this kind of stuff. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for colleges for a while and I'm, I'm familiar with it. And she said, well, come up with a couple of ideas because I'm fascinated with this social media, social networking, blogging world, but I don't know anything about it. And so I put together a list of ideas and she immediately went to my boss and said, I'm going to give you a bunch of budget to let him do this stuff. Wow. And, and so I kind of walked into creating a social media position at a very large ad agency. And because I was at an ad agency doing social media before ad agencies were doing social media, sure, I, I got invited to speak at a bunch of conferences. I ended up getting an offer to write a book and one thing led to another. And, and now I'm this like, you know, marketing talking head, uh, you know, speaking at conferences, writing books. I had a blog of my own that I built into something pretty successful. And so I kind of, you know, just kind of followed that path and that sort of core knowledge that good marketing is just good ideas. And I would throw them out there and I guess they were good enough for people to be receptive of them. And so, you know, fast forward a couple of years and I'm, you know, I left that agency and started my own consultancy, which became its own boutique agency. And, you know, one thing led to another and I just wound up, wound up going to Cafe Press for a while. And then I was at a couple other agencies and and now here I am at Scipio. And then, of course, along the way, I've had these little side projects, ideas that I've come up with, like Marketing Podcast Network and whatnot, that just kind of keep me engaged and entertained. And that's what I do. Awesome. So 2005, 2006, mm-hmm. this is the super early days of Facebook. Mm-hmm. Facebook wasn't, wasn't available yet. Yeah. I think it was 2008 was when Facebook right. opened up to non- College, college yeah. addresses. So yeah, it was, I was working in the MySpace place at, at, oh, at Second Life of all places back in the day. Good stuff. Wow. That is, that is wild. <laughs> so I don't know. You might not have an answer to this. So I apologize if that's the case. We can I always have an answer it for out, everything, dude. No, there I we go. always have an answer. <laughs> yeah. I'll make it um, up. I don't care. You know, I kind of saw social media from a distance, you know, like at that point, I wasn't working in it i was using it but not really working in it you know from your perspective where you're you know kind of shoulder deep in it from a very early point what's different about social media now versus those early days wow that's a great question you know if you look at social media in 2023 compared to 2005 2006 there's a couple of really big blaring differences the first of which is Back then, brands did not have a clue uh, mm. how to be social, how to be human, how to connect with consumers on a real human level. And social media introduced that skill set to brands. Um, there were a handful very early on who were accidentally doing good things and or one person within, like, you know, everybody sort of knows Robert Scoble was the first Microsoft blogger, right? Right. And he was just doing it and asking for forgiveness, not permission. It wasn't an official thing, but he put a human face and voice on a big, huge brand. Um, Lionel Menchaca was doing the same thing at Dell, right? So there were all these people who were popping up who were trying to use these social channels where people were really just having conversations 
And they weren't jumping in trying to sell their product. They were jumping in just trying to be useful, just trying to answer questions. And, hey, I work at Dell. If you're having a problem, maybe I can route that problem to the right person. And so back then, brands had no clue. Now, every brand is plugged into social. And for the sure. most part, they know what they're doing. They're not, not all of them are real good at it, but they're still trying to promote and sell their product probably too much. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot more usage of it from the brand perspective. There are careers now at brands and at agencies that are all, you know, community management careers and social listening analyst careers and things like that. Sure. None of that existed back then. Right. But I, I think the other glaring difference is the sheer volume of people that are creating content on these social channels that has evolved into the influencer creator economy Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of those people are gathering enough audiences to be able to monetize the content they're creating. Got and it. so, you know, in 2005, 2006, we were talking about a couple of dozen mom blogs, right? That was the world of quote unquote influencers back sure. then. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If, if you thought of influencers within this very narrow social media perspective, I have a tendency to look at influencers in a very much, much more broad perspective. But if you're thinking about, oh, these are people who have an audience because of social media, back then, you know, you you had a very small, you know, window of people that were doing it and that brands were starting to pay attention to. Now, holy crap, most people with an Instagram account probably consider themselves at least having the potential of being an influencer. Sure. Yeah. And so the sheer noise that's out there and trying to distinguish the signal from that noise is probably the biggest difference from my perspective of having to help brands figure out how to navigate that world. Got it. Yeah. Plus, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was high speed internet or just the way things naturally go, but to see that it's like everybody jumped mm -hmm. into it eventually, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like my 86, 87 year old grandmother has a Facebook page. Oh yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, Absolutely it was, crazy. It was two things. It was certainly broadband internet, you know, the ubiquitousness of that and the penetration of broadband internet changed the game for, you know, most people. And then honestly, the iPhone, you know, 2009 mm. was kind of the big, you know, linchpin in the whole thing. Once you were able to navigate the entire web in a user-friendly way on a three-inch screen in your hand, Changed the game. Absolutely changed the game. You know, Instagram didn't launch until 2011. It would not have been successful without the the smartphone. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, Facebook launched in 2008 and really didn't blow up, blow up until 2009, 10. A lot mm -hmm. of that had to do with that mobile access. True. So, you know, you, you can say what you want about Steve Jobs and Apple and whatnot, but that singular moment in technology history literally changed the world. Mm. And, opened up the floodgates. Some call that good. Some call it bad. Call it what you will. It changed the world. Doesn't matter if it's good or bad. It completely changed everything. Sure. And now it's kind of hard to think. I, somebody asked me the other day, I was talking about like the 2005, 2006 range, and they said something about smartphones. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. We were doing all this shit on Blackberries right. with the, the full keyboard, the QWERTY keyboard on, and our thumbs. Mm -hmm. And if you got to see a, an image on your, you know, a full color image on your, your little screen on your Blackberry, it was a little thumbnail and you couldn't blow it up. I mean, 
we were navigating, we were navigating what we're navigating today with like a chisel and, and tablet. Yeah. uh, Back then, not an electronic tablet, a piece of rock tablet in comparison. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we were, we were definitely in the, in the ice age according, you know, in comparison. Definitely. Wow. It's, it's so easy to forget about that phase two. Yeah. Just because it, it seemed like it went fast, you know, like 2004, three, four, somewhere in there. It seemed like it was okay. Everyone's starting to get cell phones. Yeah. You know, yep. Blackberry. Then you got some of the weird cell phones that came out, <laughs> like the sidekick. Uh huh. Yeah. That, like I, I, every now and then I come across a box that has some of my old phones in it. It's like, what the hell was, did oh, I yeah. even do with this thing? Exactly. It was a wild ride. Um, you know, I remember when I, when I worked in New York in 1996, I had a multi-screen, like you could tab from screen to screen pager. Wow. And and it wasn't color. It was still monochrome, but like I could get ESPN headlines and I could read the USA today and I could do things on this pager that I'd never seen before. And then fast forward, see, that was 96, 97. And I think it was probably 2000. One maybe is when I got my first like Blackberry, real Blackberry. I had a Palm Pilot for a while and then I had a Blackberry and then I probably had the Blackberry until, you know, roughly around 2009 when the iPhone came out Mm -hmm. and that switch and never looked back. Yep. And now there was a meme that was floating around the other day and I couldn't help but laugh and share it. It was uh, somebody said, they tweeted it. They said, oh, imagine if like, Twitter had this function where you just put your favorite song on there. So when people visit your profile, they hear what you're listening to. Oh, it's you like, mean MySpace? Yeah. Somebody posted it's like, oh my God, we've hit a generation that doesn't know what MySpace exactly. was. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's funny. You know, it, and this is, this is a kind of a sad, you know, but very, very similar perspective because about the same time, I don't know when the Sopranos came out, but my son and I, just started watching it we're on like the third episode or something like that now i I watched it back in the day but he had never seen we're watching it together on hbo max and it's like the second or third episode tony's mom has a a, a kind of a live-in helper that comes in to help her at her house and she's an african-american or or, um, jamaican young lady or whatever Mm -hmm. and at one point in the episode the mom, you know, gets frustrated and looks at Tony or somebody and says, you know, all oh, the trouble with all these blacks. And my son was like, Oh my God. And I was like, <laughs> um, in, when this came out, people, sometimes, some people talked that way. Yeah. And he was like, nah, I was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was actually, it wasn't good. It wasn't nice. It certainly was racist, right. but it was generally kind of, not accepted, but it wasn't, it was kind of like, oh, okay, that person's weird. Right. But pe- people talked that way. It, yeah. And it's, it's amazing to think that was probably about 2004, 2005. It wasn't yep. that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. So we've come an awful long way in, 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 in a lot of good ways. Uh, yeah. Certainly, certainly there's some ways that we haven't come along that are bad, but at the same time, man, you think back just, you know, 16, 17 years ago, my son's 17 years old. He'll be 18 in a couple of months when he was born, which wasn't that long ago. The world was very different. Very. Different. Yeah, absolutely. Think. Definitely. Yeah. We, we have the, uh, 
the fortune of, you know, we're kind of involved from the, the tech perspective and communication perspective. Like we kind of got our finger on the pulse of, of how it's happening. Yeah. So it's, it's just so wild. Yeah. So kind of switching it up a little bit, the world of influence marketing, you mentioned the early days you brought up mom blogs and I was like, Oh man, there's a, there's a blast from the past. Yeah. Where, there's a term you haven't heard in a while. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to take this opportunity to, to get our second break in to tight. See you on the other side of this. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. What led you into that? Like, obviously, you know, you worked with brands. They worked with you on the social piece of it. Where, where did the influence, working with influence, come was, out of it? Yeah, it, it, was, it was an overlap of, you know, I was playing in this world of social media, but I was a PR guy. Right. And so mm-hmm. if you if you really think about it, the media relations part of PR, public relations, is reaching out to third party people who have an audience and trying to work through them to communicate a message to that audience. And, you know, in the old days, it was, you know, an official, you know, sort of path was the public relations person reached out to the journalist, the writer or the TV reporter or the radio person uh, and said, hey, I've got a story idea and, you know, here's here's the take on it. And here's all the information. If you're interested, you know, let's, let's connect and I can put you in touch with my client to interview them and all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of how PR driven news stories happened and, and, and coverage happened. Well, influence marketing is really not any different. The only big, the big difference is that social media democratized publishing. And so you didn't no longer, you know, as of about 2001, 2002, as Friendsters and MySpaces and things started mm-hmm. to happen and blogs and blogger.com and whatnot happened. Now, all of a sudden, you didn't have to go to journalism school in order to be able to publish something. You didn't have to have a degree in radio TV to, you know, upload a video to YouTube. Of course, that was a little bit later in 2005, but you didn't have to have an FCC license to record a podcast and put it out right. on the internet for people to hear it, you know? Yep. Yep. So social media democratized publishing. And what that meant was, is there were people out there like journalists who had audiences, but they didn't understand or know what public relations people were. And so it's really just a matter from a PR perspective of saying, okay, this person's not a trained journalist. They don't understand the traditional you know, model of separation of church and state, there's editorial content and then there's advertising and ne'er the two shall meet. Mm-hmm. When you, when you look at a blogger though, they, they are not a journalist because a, they're not trained as one, but B they're not paid as one, right? Yeah. They don't have a parent company that's paying them so that they can write their editorial content. If they want to make money doing it, they got to also sell the ads. They got to also monetize the content. 
And so there was in the 2004, five, six to probably eight, nine, 10 range, there was this big sort of headbutting that was happening between bloggers, which was what we called influencers back then because sure. Instagram wasn't a thing and social media wasn't right. as big. So you had bloggers who were the influencers and you had PR people and the PR people were reaching out to the bloggers and the bloggers were like, screw you, pay me. Like, why, why would I ever write about your crap? I'm not going to waste my time doing that. If you want me to write about it, pay for my time. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of was a bit of a conflict. And that was actually one of the conflicts that happened in the social media world that I kind of stuck my foot in the middle of and, you know, became known for being a voice, not just for PR people, but also for the bloggers and the social media cr creators. Cause I saw the gap and saw why they were button heads. And I was sure. like, Hey, we've got to educate the bloggers and the, the influencers, if you will, we weren't using that term yet then, We've got to educate them to understand what PR people are and that they can be a resource. And we mm. have to educate them too, that PR people don't have a paid budget and they, they don't buy ads. And so there's a, you got to go through a different path to get that from a brand. But then we also have to educate the PR people to understand these folks don't have separation of church and state. Nobody pays them unless, you know, they put a tip jar on their blog. So in order to, you know, borrow their time, you're going to need to rethink how you approach them and say, Hey, here's what's in it for you because just access to your CEO or just access to a free product isn't enough. You mm -hmm. know, if they're going to spend their time doing it, you got to account for that. Sure. So I was kind of in the middle of that, trying to, trying to bring those two sides together a little bit with a lot of other people. I wasn't the only person doing it. And so, you know, that was, that was where my, you know, sort of sinking my teeth into the influencer marketing world really started to happen was being a PR person and seeing the conflict and trying Got to bring it. those two together. So when I'm working with, you know, Makers Mark Bourbon and some of the other brands I was working with in 2006, 2007, 2008, I was like, oh, okay. So we want to get the word out about this bourbon or this event or whatever, so I'm going to reach out to instead of, you know, they had a, they have a PR person at Maker's Mark that does all the PR work. I'm going to reach out to the, the bloggers. I'm going to reach out to the social media influencers, the people who have Twitter followers and whatnot. And I'm going to try to bridge that gap. And so one of the first things I remember doing that really made an impact on the brand side and was good for the content creator, we helped launch the agency that I was at at the time helped launch Rye One Bourbon which okay. was, uh, or I'm sorry, Rye One Rye Whiskey, right. uh, which was a new brand from Beam Global Spirits and Wine, which is the parent company of Jim Beam and Maker's Mark and, and others. I think it's Beam Suntory now, but anyway. So Rye One, and it was positioned as this sort of kind of upscale, trendy, metropolitan take on rye whiskey. It wasn't uh, positioned like all other rye whiskeys. And we're going to sell this to, you know, 67 year old people who drink it out of the bottle in the backwoods, right? Yep. This, this is going to be a sophisticated, super premium rye whiskey. And so we developed this, um, you know, blogger outreach <laughs> kit uh, where we had a bottle and a, you know, a, a glass and a bunch of other things that we put in branded stuff. And we shipped it to them and said, we want you to give this new rye whiskey a try and, and, you know, 
if you like it, we'd love for you to write about it. We didn't ask them to write about it, but it, that was what we were going for. And I chose all of these, you know, whiskey, bourbon, spirits, bloggers, and influential people out there and sent it off to. There was a guy who ran a bar in Houston, Texas. His name was Robert Heigl. And he had a very, very well-respected and well-read, uh, you know, whiskey, bourbon blog at the time. He probably still does. I haven't you know, looked him up in a long time. But he wrote this, like, scathing review and it was like what Jeez. does beam beam global think they're doing rye whiskey this this the bottle is like all fancy and hoity-toity and stick your pinky up and like he just ripped it mm. and 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 i noticed that he never talked about the taste so i reached out to him of course all my client was pissed they were really sure so i reached out to him and i said hey here, here I, I just want to point out a couple of things to you you know, if you, if that's, if that's all you're ever going to say about this brand, then I'll just have to deal with the client and we'll, we'll deal with it. But here's what I want, want you to, to think about. Number one, did you actually taste it? Did you try it? Sure. Because you didn't talk about it. So I'd really love to know what you think of the actual spirit. Second of all, this is not intended for your typical rye audience. It's intended to be an upscale, trendy, metrosexual, if you will, you know, nightclub hopping audience in New York or LA or Chicago or whatever. This right. isn't a, a rye whiskey for rye whiskey drinkers. This is trying to introduce rye whiskey to people who don't drink rye whiskey. And he responded, and I did this via email. I, I did talk to him on the phone at one point, but I did that via email. And he responded back and said, you know what? I never thought of it that way. Hmm. And so he followed up with another post and said, hey, you know what? On second thought, here's a little bit more information about this rye one thing. Now, it didn't undo you know, the damage or the negativity right. first thing, but at least he was like, you know what? They pointed a few things out to me that I need to share with you. And if that, if you take all that into consideration, maybe this brand's worth checking out. Maybe this isn't such a bad thing after all. And the client wasn't as mad. They weren't like overly thrilled because there was sure. a lot of negative there, but I felt like that was a huge win because this is an old school bourbon whiskey. Sure. Beer. He yeah, wasn't going to yeah, take yeah. any of this hoity-toity pinky up bullshit. <laughs> and so at that point, I realized bridging the gap between social media creators and brands is something that I know how to do and can do pretty well. Um, not always going to be perfect. There's going to be bumps along the way, but I understand that both perspectives and can bridge that gap. And so from that point on, everything I built, everything I did always had, here's you know, a strategy for public relations, media relations in the traditional sense. And then here's how we need to think of it in terms of social media content creators, even though I never called them that really, I always called them bloggers or, you know, uh, you know, Twitterati or whatever we called them. And then as Instagram and whatnot started to emerge, people started using the word influencer. And so I kind of, you know, used it as well. I really, I, I tend to use the term content creator now these days, Got it. because I also don't think that the number of followers is as important anymore. Uh, and so I, I tend to not call people influencers any more than I call them content creators. I also don't call it influencer marketing. I call it influence marketing because I'm yep. focused on the goal, not the person. And, and so that kind of helps me keep my mind straight on what I'm trying to do. That's a, uh, that's a great story. Just, uh, I mean, obviously our shared interest in quality whiskey <laughs> aside. Yeah. No, that's, that's really cool. So here we are in 2023, we're seeing some of the effects, good and bad, 
of the democratization of, hey, anyone can publish anything. <laughs> you know, where do you think the world of social media and influence is going? Like, mm -hmm. where, what do you think is next? Well, I think we're going to we're going to have to have some sort of the pendulum swinging back a little bit because the last five years have been this explosion of content creators and content and, you know, all these different, you know, channels that you can, that, that are, are fighting for consumers attention. I think what's probably going to happen. And, and I'm not the only person who's saying this, I've been starting to read the tea leaves a little bit here and see other people popping up in this, this idea is kind of out there. So I think this is going to become a, a trend over the next few years. I think consumers are going to start to surround themselves with very specific topical content filters. And so I think you're going to see people who are like, you know what, I'm going to go to Twitter and I'm going to either make a list or I'm going to get rid of all the people who don't talk about these two or three things that I'm really sure. interested in getting out of Twitter. I'm only going to go to the websites and subscribe to the blogs and the news magazines and the podcasts and the live streams and the videos channels of people who create this kind of topic. I think we're going to start to see people get away from this, you know, sort of everything, everywhere, all the time kind of information right, all at once. Yeah. And really zero in on things. And especially professionally from a B2B perspective, you know, I think if somebody out there wants to be a good SEO professional, they're going to dial in and they're going to, you know, have SEO last week as a podcast and they're going to, you know, read search engine journal and they're going to subscribe to sure. the newsletter for this particular website and this particular person. And that's all they're going to consume. They're going to get rid of the social media stuff. They're going to get rid of, you know, the marketing stuff. They're probably going to get rid of the IT web development stuff. And they're just going to hone in on what they what is really going to drive their professional development. I just think consumers are going to swing back a little bit and say, okay, I got to filter all this stuff out and gotcha. get rid of, get rid of all the riffraffs. I can really be productive and, and focus, which is why one of the underlying reasons, even though I wasn't really clear on it at the time, I'm starting to be much more intentional about it now. Why mar the marketing podcast network, I think is a really good idea and will ultimately grow and be successful because I think there's a lot of people out there, especially now that we've settled into this, you know, virtual work, you know, hybrid work from home, work in the office, post-pandemic world where we don't have the water cooler anymore, at least not the mm -hmm. way we used to. We don't have the professional development opportunities in the office the way we used to. So I feel like from a marketing perspective, people are going to start to say, I need a place where I can get the latest, greatest marketing opinion, thought leadership, et cetera. So a resource like Marketing Podcast Network right now from a podcast perspective, I think does a nice job of that. I'd like to expand what we're doing to include more than just podcasts so yeah. that we can become that sort of informational vertical specific hub that is a knowledge source and a gathering place for people to just say, hey, what's the latest five things I need to know today about marketing so that I can go back to work and do my job and be cognizant of what's happening? I hope we can provide that for people. And I'm sure there's going to be other iterations of that in different verticals too. But that's the big trend, I think. I think people are going to start to filter and focus um, Got it. because they, they don't really have a choice unless they just want to be schizophrenic scatterbrains. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been really cool to see and hear kind of like your, what your vision of the of MPN 
is moving towards a marketing podcast network is moving towards. Mm -hmm. And it's really exciting to kind of, you know, be a, be a part of it in the tiny way that I am. (laughs) Um, I, I, I hope, uh, I hope to do something cool with it and I'm glad you're along for the ride and I'm glad your listeners are along for the ride too, because we're going to, we're going to do some fun things. Yeah, man. Uh, It's, it's so much, there's so many smart people a part of that network and it, it's just really amazing what you've been able to put together and like i'm i'm and it's it's in its infancy mm-hmm. like it's it's like it barely passed the embryo stage you know what i mean that's <laughs> right. it's it's so yeah. cool to see like how much traction it's already picking up and it's like what how many shows are there now like uh four i think 41 total yeah um and and 36 seven of them i think are in the ad network because we we have the option to not do ads too so we've got a few of those and and then we've got others that do have ads um but yeah we're about 41 i think is where we are yeah now. yeah it's it's like the, the the sky's the limit with it as as cheesy as that sounds but i mean it, it's it's true though i mean it's it's absolutely yeah. amazing well and that's i mean 13 months in you know we we started with i think the initial you know group that i pulled together was like five people and, you know, 13 months later, we're at 41 and, you know, by the end of next week, we might be 43. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's, it's just slowly, but surely getting out there. And, and as we grow and are able to, you know, earn a little ad revenue and invest a little bit in promoting what we're doing, we're going to grow even faster. So hopefully we got nowhere to go, but up and, and we'll keep going up. Definitely. Yeah. And just kind of playing into exactly what you're saying. I mean, it, I also agree that it seems like people are kind of in a state of overwhelm with mm-hmm. social. And I, I think you put it beautifully that it's like, it seems like that pendulum is starting to come back and people are going to start self curating in a way. The best thing that I've done personally in the last six months or so is, um, and, I, and I've done this on Twitter for a long time because Twitter made Twitter lists, you know, relatively mm-hmm. early on 2009 or whatever whatever. And, and it was easy to say, Oh, I can just put the 45 people that I care about over here. And I just filter that out and just see them. So I've been doing it on Twitter for a long time, but I literally went through, I spent probably two hours um, the other day going through my Facebook friends and pages that I follow and just gutting it, just getting mm-hmm. rid of people either. And, and from a, from a personal perspective, I, I use Facebook personally much more than I do from a business perspective. I went through and it wasn't, it's not a personal thing. It's not like I don't like these people. It's just like, I don't need to see all their personal stuff if I'm connected with them on a professional level, unless I know them, I know their family. I've gone to dinner with them. I've been to their house. Like there's certain filters. So I kind of set up a little informal list of do I, do this, does this person meet these check boxes? And if they didn't, I just unfollowed them. I didn't necessarily unfriend them. I just made sure they weren't in my feed my feed is like a thousand times better now. Yep. It's amazing how much more I'm like, I get to see the stuff from the people I want to see. I don't see the stuff from the people I don't want to see. And Facebook is much more productive. So if you actually take the time to set up your filters on whatever network it is, you can do it on Instagram too. And you get a much better experience. And I think people are going to continue to do that. I I think you're right. I I think it's just uh, people got bombarded over the pandemic (laughs) <laughs> that or the, the lockdown phase of it anyway, when it was just sure. like people just got put into a state of overwhelm. And now we're kind of seeing people coming out of it. And it's like, all right, yeah, 
I don't well, want to see this. And that presents a big challenge for our brands, our clients, right? You know, we've, we've got to figure out a way to create the type of content that is going to make it through the filter. Um, mm. You know, our, our content has to be much better now than it needed to be three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, True. because there's so much more noise that it, as people start to filter, you got to be providing something really good or they're going to be like, I don't need to see this, you know, promotional BS in my feed. Yep. Uh, Cause if I'm going through, if I'm not Jason falls and I'm going through my Facebook feed and I see content from Scipio and that content is not something that I find instantly interesting and useful. Scipio goes away. Right. Mm -hmm. So I've got to make sure from that perspective uh, on the brand side of things, that we're creating really interesting content for the audience that we're trying to reach, knowing that we're going to reach a lot more people who are going to tune us out. That's okay. I'm totally fine with that. As long as the people that we're trying to reach are not tuning us out, then I'm going to be winning. So uh, it, it presents a different challenge from the brand side of things. And I think that's something that, you know, uh, all your listeners need to be thinking about is how can I create exceptional content? Even if it's just 100%. a podcast where people are talking about interesting things, that's better than a static image of your product saying, buy this shit, you know, buy my shit. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Well, man, I I've already exceeded what we said. We'd uh, set aside today by a minute, <laughs> by a minute. No but, worries. Um, this was a, um, an absolute pleasure to have you on, man. I, I've, I hope uh, folks, I, I know folks got a couple golden nuggets out of this. So is there anything that you uh, want to leave us with? Well, I, if anything, just remember uh, as, as hoity toity as people might make me out to be at <laughs> one point, I cut the boobs off a of Barbie doll. So, you know, the world is a, the world is a pretty average place out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, uh, this was this was awesome. Thank you again for being here. We'll have links to what Jason is up to in the show notes, so you can check out what he's up to. to grab a copy of his books, all that. Subscribe to all the podcasts. Follow the Marketing Podcast Network. All of that fun stuff. Thank you again, man. I really, hey, I really appreciate it. Absolutely, my pleasure, Sean. I love what you're doing, and keep doing it. Cool. I appreciate it, man. We'll see you next time. Yep. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.